So 1 Corinthians, I'll begin by reading 1 Corinthians, and you can follow along. I'll be reading out of the New King James. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. It says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything in him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Shall we open in prayer? Gracious Father, we thank you so much for uh, your word, for the truth it gives to us. Thank you, Lord, for um, empowering us with your Holy Spirit and uh, the residence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, presence. And Father, we just pray that uh, you would bless this um, time. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to learn more about who you are and the plans that you have for us. And we pray that you would be lifted up. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. This morning, uh, if I were to give a title in this intro, it would be Spiritual Parents Must Always Point Their Spiritual Children to Jesus Christ. And really what we're going to look at is kind of more introductory remarks about the, a letter. Um, and uh, as we begin studying the book of 1 Corinthians this year, we'll be going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's important to remember the primary issue between the Apostle Paul and the people at Corinth. This is a very young, early church and that he started it. And Paul is writing to the church because of issues that have been uh, brought to him by others. If you remember, um, we'll see later, the household of Chloe. And there's others who have come to Paul and, and spoken with him about things that are going on. But the main issue is one of conflict between this emerging doctrine of the church and the teachings of Paul. And the leaders or a group of the church was not wanting to submit to the Pauline authority and therefore were distorting the true gospel as well. And so one of the terms that the Corinthians did not understand is what does it mean to be spiritual? And uh, the challenge is that sometimes they interpret it or they believe it to be something different from what the Word of God says. And this was a Gentile church. You have to remember that the congregation was made up mostly of individuals who were not Hebrew in background. And uh, so if we think about it comparatively, uh, someone who doesn't know the background of Christ. If I were to ask you, how many of you grew up in a local church? Okay, quite a few of you. Some didn't. And those of you who didn't, what happens is as you learn about Christianity, learn about local church, there's a, a subculture, if you will. They do different things. Some churches, they all wear suit and ties. Some churches, they sing out of the hymnals, the versions, the, the way they act, you know, certain things. Oh, I can't sit over there because, you know, that's so-and-so seat, you know. And I'm like, you know, sit in their seat and see what happens. Sometimes we've got to ch- shake people up a little bit, change, you know, understand but uh, that's just how I am in my nature. So a little impish, but to understand that in Christ, hey, gets, you, gets other people that have to practice 
uh, spiritual maturity and to respond. But there are certain things that we learn about, about how churches operate, how people operate. And uh, it's important. As we, um, as adults come in, there are things that are right, that are just preferences, but there's also doctrinal issues that we would never compromise on. And so as this church is growing, they don't understand even the doctrinal issues. And because of that, it was causing their behavior because they lived in the city of Corinth. And really the city of Corinth, um, to be called a Corinthian, was one who is to be sexually immoral. So you know already the city, as we think about, if I were to say Las Vegas, sometimes there's a nickname that goes with that. What is that called? Sin City. So that's kind of the city of Corinth, to give you a little bit of background of that, what is related to relate to us kind of the context. And so here, even the term spiritual, to understand, they don't understand what that means, and it can be ambiguous. And so it's similar to our own culture. But let me give you some issues. First of all, how does Paul reestablish apostolic authority in a situation where his authority has been diminished? Um, When he is emphasizing a cultural contrasting if you will, not method, but an um, example of spirit, um, servant leadership. So think about this. He's an apostle, and he's tr- trying to exercise apostolic authority, but he also says, I want you to serve like a, um, I want you to behave like a servant. So it's, it's a difficult challenge. If you hold your spot and go to chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, and this is just uh, looking through the book, chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through 9, it states and says, um, Then who then is Paul, and why is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed? As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. He's stressing there to understand because there were divisions. Obviously, we'll see throughout the book the divisions and factions. And he's saying, guess what? It's not about the positions there. Obviously, you are to follow. um, Paul later says, follow me as I follow Christ. But um, we are to serve alongside one another. We are co-laborers. You hear him express that, use those terms as well. And then uh, we see here um, one more. If you just go back to ch- go next over to chapter four, verse one, First Corinthians chapter four, verse one. It says, "Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself." For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. So he's expressing the apostolic authority. Guess what? God is the one who has directed me, placed me in that position. So I would, you know, he's he's giving the apostolic authority to say, hey, follow me. Doctrinally, this is the teaching that God has given to me. And then how does Paul convince them to change their belief in theology and follow his teachings? Remember, you have a Greek city, mostly Greek city, and if you think of philosophy and teachings, uh, oftentimes in an urban setting, there are new ideas, and, and they are learning about, hey, how do you do this, and what are the best ways to do things, new ideas. 
And uh, so he's combating that as well. And if we look at the internal evidence of the book, there's no evidence of any outside influence. Sometimes in different books, there's like false teachers that creep in unaware or different philosophy, maybe from a different uh, group that have come in and tried to twist or change uh, what they believe. But we don't have that evidence. There's no Judaizers who say, hey, you ha- must follow the Jewish Hebrew laws. You don't have heretics who say, you know, this isn't right. And so these are these people who do not have enough depth in discipleship, and then maybe they're confronted with questions and misinterpret it. So there are some people who, in a church, they're learning about, and maybe if you think about students who go into Bible college, and Bible students usually think they know everything. Oh, you know, they get some Bible college, and then they, oh, I know everything, you know, and they go through and, hey, you know what, this might be some hidden new teaching. And they have to be careful because uh, those, as it talks about even Paul, not a novice, because sometimes in their excitement and in, in desire to want to preach the word of God, they can become, uh, mis- they can take the scripture and misinterpret it. So they have to be careful. Um, have they erred in their beliefs because of doubt and past cultural misunderstandings? See, in academic circles, ones are taught to criticize and evaluate everything and deconstruct their beliefs. It's interesting because as a, as I was preparing for this message, I read uh, a publication called the Baptist Bulletin, and I forgot to bring it. But it talks about the deconstruction of our faith, or people who um, talk about the deconstruction. Um, and what that is is... It's the danger arise when one's belief have not been correctly established or understood. And so people have made salvific decisions with their heads. They have made a decision for Christ. Or maybe younger, they've, if you've heard the thing, you've heard this term like say this prayer and you'll be saved. You know? And so they believe the words have saved them. Or ask Jesus into your heart. Those can be confusing, especially for children, if they're not grounded or taught what that means. And so maybe they've grown up in the church and they don't understand what it means to be a true believer in Christ. And the danger arises because it becomes an intellectual comprehension, but not with their hearts. And so they haven't understood to be able to grow in that relationship of what it means to be a child of God. What does it mean to be saved, delivered from your sin? And uh, so what occurs is deconstruction refers to the questioning of the tenets of faith. This... um, may refer to contemporary Christians in prominent positions. If you've heard of, uh, um, in the past, there was a, a young author called um, Joshua Harris, and I kiss dating goodbye, and many young Christians read that, and then he arrived at the point, well, you know what, I, I don't think I'm really saved, and so they leave the faith. There are those who have um, been in music or others who say, you know, I don't think um, I really, this is what I believe, you know, I've gone through it, and, and I don't believe it anymore. What often happens is they aren't really truly grounded and they aren't searching about what they believe. They just have come to a point, maybe events in their lives, and they turn. And that's what's dangerous because people who have lifted them up positionally, oh, look, they're, they're a mature Christian. Well, they're not necessarily a mature Christian. They're just a Christian in a more prominent position. And so that's where we need to be careful of following after individuals. Paul says, follow after me as I follow after Christ. He's an apostle. We're not. So the danger is to understand and grow in our faith. There are some who come to Christ and immediately they start serving or being used in a position, but they haven't really been grounded in the truth. And we have the example of Paul. When Paul came to Christ, think about this. Paul was a a Jew. 
He was of the tribe of Benjamin. We see in 1 Timothy of all the things he was, the heritage. He studied under Gamaliel. He was a, uh, a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And then all of a sudden, he comes to Christ. And then what happens? His life is transformed. But he didn't immediately go out and start preaching to the masses. He took a year or so and actually studied again what he believed. And that's why evangelism is such an essential item, but also discipleship, to understand and read the Word of God. Because what often happens is people come to Christ, and then they just read the Word of God, and then just go through it, read it, read it. But to be able to study it out, how does this apply to your lives? And to be able to recognize both what you believe, but also why. When's the last time you asked, you know, why... What do I believe? Do I, what do I believe about this? And to be able to articulate it to someone else. I always tell parents and others, whatever you believe, make sure you express it and tell other people why you're doing that. Sometimes you might not understand why you do that. Well, just because. You know, you think about the child. Why are you doing that? Well, because. Because why? Because I told you to. Usually that's what happens. But to have a, not only logical, but sometimes a spiritual understanding to teach those. And that's what has happened. And uh, parents or, or Christians haven't really expressed or been able to articulate and to explain to young believers why we do the things we do, because we've always done it that way. And I would challenge that and say, you know what, it's important to, to have a reason of why we do things. And it's okay not to do things, because some of us like order, some of us like to have um, order and method. If you've ever heard of Hercule Poirot, he likes order and method. And most of us, that brings us comfort. If we were to do things a certain way, we like to follow the order and method. How many of you like randomness and chaos? All right, there's one, one of you. Good. You know, some of the two? Sometimes it's fun, right? Just to do it. Those are the type of people who keep things spontaneous, you know? And they're the ones, feel free to sit in someone else's seat because that'll be like, oh, no, you know, I have to sit somewhere else. But, but my point in that is understanding is that we are different. And in that randomness and chaos, what happens is the New Testament letters follow the standard um, of understanding that it is important to the doctrine and teaching. And so as we understand transition back to the book here, uh, this context of the Greco-Roman period has a distinct threefold greeting in this book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you go back, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and so Sinees are brothers. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And this is, in the Greco-Roman period, there's a threefold greeting. Usually you have uh, the name of the writing, of the writer, um, the addressee, and the greeting. Simple, as we think about uh, a letter. Nowadays, we don't write letters anymore. If I were to ask you, how many of you, um, when's the last time you wrote a letter, a personal letter to someone? You know, how many, anyone wrote a letter? Okay. Marsha still writes, you know, maybe Kaylee, different ones. And I express, and I don't mean a note. It's one thing to write a little note, thank you, things like that. But to write a note, hey, dear so-and-so, you know, I haven't talked to you in a long time. People don't write anymore. That's why some of these even people don't even send cards anymore. But that used to be an important part of culture because of distances. Now we can just text people. Now we can DM them and do all these things. We can send them an emoji instead. That's a lot quicker, right? And we feel connected. 
but to write a letter, it takes a little bit of time. Well, here, in this context, letter writing was an important part, and it was an essential part of the culture, and so you'd have to wait for a letter. That delayed gratification, right? But as we go to the message, let's look at, we're going to look at three things. First of all, um, as we think about it, all these letters in the New Testament follow the standard greeting except for one, and that's Third John, which is just a little addendum. But as we see these three, there's going to be uh, three things we look at. First of all, verse 1. Paul reminds the Corinthians that he is our spiritual authority. So if we go back, remember the, the message, if I were to give it a title, is spiritual parents must always point their spiritual children to Jesus Christ. What that means, a spiritual parent is one who has led another one to Christ. In the area of discipleship, there is a, if you will, a spiritual responsibility to help that person to grow in their faith. Don't just leave them. You know, humanly speaking, it's human babies that are the only ones who are really helpless. Other animals, you know, they, they leave them on their own. They have to survive. But human babies are helpless. And as we look at it, that the same example is given for Christian believers. They're really helpless. And you just let them, oh, they came to Christ. They won't know what they believe. They won't remember. And the world takes and pushes their philosophy and their teachings upon them. But here we have Paul reminds the Corinthians that he is their spiritual authority in verse 1. And as we think about a spirit, an authority, um, there was a, this, sorry it's not this Bob, but uh, there was a, a, a man named Bob who was a Walmart greeter. And he was habitually always late for work at Walmart. But otherwise a pretty good employee. Well finally out of frustration, um, because he was always tardy, the store manager called Bob in for a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And uh, so began the manager, I understand you're retired from the armed forces. May I ask which branch? And uh, he says, I was in the Navy, Bob replies, and inquired his boss, well, were you ever late arriving to your former job? And Bob says, well, yes, sometimes I came late, answered Bob. Well, tell me, said the manager, what comment was made when you were late uh, um, on your arrival? The greeter smiled and replied, good morning, Admiral Jones. Would you like tea or coffee this morning? Well, because of that position, he was obviously had the authority to be able to come in late. But as we see here, the authority that the Apostle Paul is giving, he says he was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And that calling is a little different because, first of all, it had a unique position. There are some churches that call their leaders or others apostles. And um, I really refrain that term because the apostle, there were distinct characteristics of one who had seen the written Christ, one who had been with him and had been taught by him. And the apostle, through the will of God, that unique position of authority, divinely enabled, and the Holy Spirit empowered Paul through that. And so there was divine direct authority that God had given Paul as an apostle. He calls it and even had been reaffirmed, confirmed in that. It was a unique method that Paul became an apostle. That salvation upon seeing the risen Lord. And it wasn't a vision. And some people think, oh, it was a vision. It's, it wasn't some vision. There were witnesses there, and they were blinded. They couldn't see. They just heard the voice. And all of a sudden, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was a personal experience with witnesses. And the divine risen Christ ascended, revealed direct revelation, and spoke to him and said, guess what, Paul? You are no longer going to go to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And that's the specific responsibility. You are to evangelize the Gentiles. 
And for Paul, who, who was the Jew of all Jews, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, and now he has to go to the Gentiles, they're like the dogs. I mean, there was such an insult. There was such a, a, um, a contention between those two groups. Anyone who wasn't Jewish, well, wait a second. There is a certain arrogance and pride of being Jewish. And now you want me to go to Gentiles? But yet God knew and commissioned him to preach the gospel to them. And he took time to prepare and evaluate his calling before he went. And remember, he worked with Barnabas, and they went to Antioch. And uh, it was affirmed by the other apostles, his apostleship, and many other proofs. If you think about the miracles that occurred, you know, think about the dropping of the handkerchiefs to help healing people. Or sometimes there were those, the sons of Sheba and others who said, oh, we, we command you to come out in the name of Paul's God. Or being bit by a snake. You know, um, we understand about snakes. Most of us don't like snakes, but uh, we don't want to get close enough to be bit by one. But to have one grabbing your hand and then to shake it off. There were miracles that Paul uh, did, and some of those were confirming, even the healings. So we see that he expresses to this church that he is their spiritual authority and that he is called by God as an apostle. And that's an important part to recognize that. But secondly, we see that Paul reminds the Corinthians of their spiritual position. It isn't just obey me because I'm the apostle and I'm the spiritual authority, but also think about your spiritual position. And as we think about positions, um, I think about um, sometimes you might be a father, a dad. Uh, sometimes you might have a job position, but you are a believer in Christ. Uh, there is a... Um, there was reaching the end of a job interview. The human resources officer asked a young engineer fresh out of ASU, and what starting salary were you looking for? The young engineer replies, you know what, in the region of 325000 a year, depending on the benefits package. The interviewer inquires, well then, what would you say to a package of five weeks vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, company matching retirement, funded 50% of your salary, a company car leased every two years, say maybe a red Corvette, would that work? The engineer's all excited, sits up straight, says, wow, are you kidding? And the interviewer replies, yeah, but you started it. Well, that would be a great position, but uh, just understanding that that's not the position that uh, the interviewer was looking for, someone to fill that position. But we are given the position in Christ. And in Christ, as Paul talks about, um, while Paul had a unique position and a unique method and specific responsibility. Paul reminds the Corinthians of their spiritual position. And that specific identification of the local church assembly at Corinth, he emphasizes their unity. Um, and so if you go back one slide on that, I'm still on the second one. So Glory, yeah, there you go. Reminds them of their spiritual, uh, I must have missed it or I skipped through, but... Um, Go to the third one. Go to the one after. I probably, because I don't have my computer, I'm a little bit out. There you go. That's it. Their spiritual position. And so what happens um, here in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So Paul reminds them their identification as believers, as saints, hagias, literally to be holy. You are holy ones. Every believer is a saint. 
not uh, St. Patrick or St. Bernard, but we are saints. And that saints means you are to be holy, separate from sin, set apart for God. And as Paul classifies them as saints, you've been called to salvation by the Holy Spirit, and you possess a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Every believer who has placed their faith, entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, a child of God, has a spiritual position that is different. Um, sometimes we use the term saved and unsaved, or you know, lost and believer. But the whole point is that position. You are now in a new position, a new standing before God. Think about this. Um, maybe there's been someone angry or a boss. You know, no one likes to be called, we call it the hot seat, or to be in the dog house. That's the position that we don't like to be in. We want to be in the position of grace. Even the song like Tuesday's Child, you know, full of grace. So the position wise here is that you are in a blessed position. And he tells the Corinthians, you are blessed. You are in a spiritual position before God. You are favored. You can receive grace. And that position as saints and also um, you are called into salvation. You are saved. You are a child of God. They, you have also been sanctified and set apart ones from sin to do the work of Jesus Christ. This spiritual method now is sanctification. And sanctification, what it refers to is now you are being set apart from sin towards God. And we've talked about this term before, but what it means is that before you were a, a slave to sin. There's nothing you could do. You had to sin. But now because of the Holy Spirit, guess what? You can choose to follow after. And it's hard because sometimes we still sin and we think, oh, I can't stop sinning. But it's not in our own power. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us overcome past sins and desires. And when we trust him, when we read the word of God, when we understand that it's not about our capability, it's about the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. You know, as sinners, we're all sinners, but we can be less of a sinner um, through the will of the Holy Spirit than we were. We can overcome things that always conquered us, and it is through the help and power of the Holy Spirit. And here we see, call to be saints with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Grace and peace to you. Um, sorry, early on where it says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That sanctification set apart. Jesus Christ is the one who set you apart. Someday you will be taken into heaven. And uh, you, you know, they use that term special. But really what happens is because of your position, you are sanctified. And then also as we continue on, it says that spiritual responsibility. Unified amidst divisions. Even though this church, and he, Paul is going to continue on as we get later, there's a lot of problems going on. He says, be unified. How many people does it take in a, in a group to be unified? Well, it, one to start, but to be unified, how many does it take? All of them, but it's a one-person decision. You can't make them all. It's a one-person. They all have to agree, but it takes one to start, if you think about it. Sometimes even within two that you can, two you can have division. And unity, here's the thing, unity doesn't mean that you're all the same. Within a church has been, okay, we all have to believe, this, we believe the church constitution. We believe, have the beliefs. And a unity 
understands that we submit to Christ, we submit to one another, we're headed in the same direction. But it doesn't mean that we're all the same. I mean, we're all different. You like different foods. You like, you like different things. Each of you are different. Um, you have different backgrounds, cultures, different places. And that's okay. But to be unity, we submit one to another and to the will of God in unity. Even in communion, we come together as a local body of believers, understanding that we're all sinners, that we mess up. That's forgiveness. In the corporate body of communion, of unity, I may have lost my what occurs is that in unity, we have a purpose that we are going to, and that is why we are unified. We're unified around Jesus Christ, not about my own desires. Hey, those who like this, and we'll see later, those who follow Paul, those who follow Paulus, those who follow, we're only God. There are so many divisions in the world today, and that is difficult because everyone wants to express their own opinion, whether it be what you like or who you are. Hey, follow this, or follow that, or, you know, like this. Give your opinion. But Christianity counters the culture and says, guess what? I'm going to follow after Christ. That's not always popular. But you know, it's interesting, because Damar Hamlin, how many of you have heard of Damar Hamlin? He's a young African-American who um, played for the Buffalo Bills, safety. And guess what? All of a sudden, even there's a, a reporter who on ESPN said, guess what, I'm going to pray for DeMar Hamlin right here on the air. Oh, man, wait a second, prayer, you know, he can't do that. Tim Tebow you can't do that, right? But there's still players, they, they never show it that before each game that still pray and partner in different sports. But that's not popular. We don't want to do that. But we believe in the power of prayer because we know who we're praying to. It isn't just uh, something that we pray mysteriously, oh, you know, about there is someone who we pray to, and that makes a difference. And that's the spiritual responsibility. Unify among divisions. And that's, we saw that occur after 9-11. There was a unity among um, the, the people who lived in the United States. But you know what also happened? There were quickly divisions because of sin. Anyone who wore a turban, they thought that they were Middle Eastern, and so they were bad people. Um, in New York, the, there is, and they also have... Um, as well in Arizona, the Sikh, S-I-K-H. They wear a turban, and people thought, oh, well, they're from Middle Eastern. Well, they must be bad because they wanted to bomb. No, people did not understand. But quickly, how quickly our sin divides us. But when it comes to the church, spiritual responsibility to understand and form. That's why, you know, I would encourage you to get to know other people. You know, you have a lot more in common than you think. And get to know other people, talk to them. Spend time with them, invite them out, or do something with them. Because there are, um, I have the privilege of knowing each of you and the stories that you have. And I am blessed and enlightened from knowing each one of you. And Paul talks about and says, guess what? You're dividing, but come unified because of Christ. You each positionally are a child of God. Finally, third, as we look at, or coming down in verse 3, grace and peace, transformations, the traditional greetings, usually a greeting, they wouldn't talk about grace and peace. they just say, hello, how are you? But here, Paul says, he uses a theological element of grace from God. Grace, guess what? Grace only comes from God. It's giving us what we don't deserve. It is like we are criminals, we deserve a punishment, but God says, you don't get, you're not going to get it because I'm going to show grace. 
The difference is mercy, God gives us less than we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. I'm guilty. I deserve to be punished. I deserve this consequence. But God shows grace to us. And then culturally, shalom. He says, peace be unto you. Peace be with you. My peace I leave with you. And uh, that's grace and peace. Charis and shalom. The third thing we see here is Paul reminds the Corinthians of the spiritual blessings they have. And blessings... You know, the problem is we're so busy, we don't think about life. There's a group of alumni from a, a highly established in their careers, and they got together to visit an old university professor. Well, the conversation s- soon turned to complaints about stress and work and life. And so he decided he was offering his guest coffee. The professor went into the kitchen, brought out a tray, and returned with a large pot of uh, or good coffee, and then all of the assortment cups. The cups were porcelain, some were porcelain, some were plastic, some were glass, some were crystal, some were plain looking, some were really fancy and uh, expensive, exquisite from different countries even, some of the China. Well, he told them to help themselves to the coffee. Well, after all the students had a cup of coffee, the professor said, if you noticed, all the nice looking and expensive cups were taken up, leaving behind the plain and cheap ones. While it is normal for you to want what is best for yourselves, what is the sor- that is the problem and the source of your problems and stress. See, be assured that the cup itself adds no quality to the drink, to the coffee. What happens is it's just more expensive and in some cases even hides what we drink. What all of you really wanted was a cup of coffee, not the cup. But you conscientiously, consciously went for the best cups and then began eyeing each other's cups. What did they take? Now consider this. Life is like the coffee. And the jobs, money, position, other things in life, society we want, are the cups. They're just tools to hold and contain life. And the type of cup we have does not define nor change the quality of the life that we live. Sometimes by concentrating only on the cup, we fail to enjoy the coffee that God has provided for us. We must appreciate the blessings that God has given to us in our lives from God. As we see here, Paul expresses thanks for the grace that has been given uh, by God to the Corinthians and through the Corinthians. He says this life, think about what your life entails. You have been enriched in everything. As we see going down here in verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and in knowledge. And that confirming, that enriching everything refers to speaking or the utterance and in knowledge. And it's funny because they get criticized for that later. But here, Paul says that you are complete in Christ. But even if you misuse your ability. We understand cereal and food. Sometimes they're enriched in nutrition or added um, minerals and vitamins. Children need their supplements. And while people might not realize enrichments they possess through their salvation. You have been enriched and given these. It's not like children say, oh, you know what, I want this cereal because it's rich and high in vitamins. Those are the ones that as we get older, we eat the cereal that, that tastes like it needs to be fed to a horse. But kids, they're like, oh, that one has sugar. Oh, that one has chocolate. I'll eat that one, right? They don't care if it's enriched in vitamins and minerals. But later in life, then we start to appreciate that. But a confirmed testimony as well, where God has established the true gospel in their lives. It says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. 
the gospel of Christ. And understanding is a true relationship with Jesus is life-altering, transformational. You know, it is evidenced by other people. That is what people cannot deny is when a person gives their testimony. Sometimes think, my testimony is just boring. Really, as we talk about testimony, there's two types. First of all, salvation testimony, how you came to Christ, and that is supernatural. Think about that. Even if it was just simple, it's a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit, regenerating, giving you new life. But also there's the transformation of your life testimony, of how you are moving away from spiritual things, your desires, you're changing, you're becoming more like Christ. And as I talk about it, the spiritual lives, um, sometimes in churches and pastors, they say, oh, you must be up here. Think about a bar graph, okay? So they say, oh, you should be up here. And then sometimes you send all oh, your way down here. You have to bring it way up here. And it's kind of like, you know, that people compare, oh, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit way up here. But that's not it. I think about it to be a flat line, to be dead to, Christ, to dead to self is alive in Christ. So if you think about a panel of an EKG, think of the life of the believer is we want to be flat line because we're dead to self. And when you're there, you're allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through your life. You're center, middle of the line. Sometimes things go like that. Sometimes, you know, life is like way highs and way lows. But we want to as quickly as we can and remember that Christ is our center. And so get back down to center and recognize that's where we should be. If we remember that it is Christ working in and through us. And here, we see here that they um, had that testimony. And he reminds them that the testimony of Christ, when you think of, I can do all things on my own, right? That's what the scripture says. If I have this job, if I'm, if I'm this, I can do all things what? Finish it. Through Christ who strengthens me, who empowers me, who enables me to not live selfishly. And that is important because that is the blessing. That is a blessing. Because if I live my own natural selfish way, it's going to be a mess. There are some people who live on their own. You think, oh, they have it all together. But emotionally, psychologically, they don't. And think about what a blessing it is to be in Christ. Also, receive spiritual gifts. Evidence that they were believers and possessed the qualities to serve effectively. Each believer possesses spiritual gifts that they are to use and serve and honor God. You have natural gifts and abilities, natural desires, but also God takes that and the spiritual gifts to be able to work with others, even beyond, or to serve Him faithfully. And to, it's important that we use our spiritual gifts to honor Him and to obey. And then also it says that they, that they would be blameless. When he returns, the righteousness of Christ, our blamelessness is not based upon our goodness, our righteousness. Usually we're the one to blame, or we always want to blame someone. In the operating room when things went wrong, I used to work in surgery, and sometimes, you know, things don't always go on naturally. You watch those medical shows, so you know, oh no, I dropped that retractor in, or you know, I have seen it where they, in the emergency surgery, a long ribbon retractor, like this big, was left in a person, but they don't understand how could that happen when the patient weighs about 400, 500 pounds. You know, you can lose something like that in an emergency surgery when, you know, you open them up and then there's bowel and loops of everything all over and it's chaotic. So usually they take an x-ray or something happens. But when something like that happens, the natural response is not like, oh, I'm sorry, it's my fault, right? And we fix it. Usually it's who did it, 
and the ABCs of surgery used to be accuse, blame, and criticize. That would be the uh, things. But our natural response is to accuse, to blame, and criticize. It's not my fault, it's your fault. But blamelessness, what that means is that because of our sin, before God, our righteousness comes from the work and power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We have a lot to be blamed for. We have a lot because of our, our sins we commit and because of our guilt. But before the throne of Christ, throne of God, because of Christ's righteousness, Satan may accuse us, but guess what? We can still go to heaven and be in his presence, even though God doesn't allow sin into his life, because we have received the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, you're blameless. You know your past sins have been forgiven and that you're blameless. I mean, there might still be consequence for them, but guess what? You're blameless. And that's why John says, confess your sins. Get back into that right relationship with God. You know, it's hard to be, it's hard to be angry. We still do it. When someone comes and confesses and asks for forgiveness, you're like, oh man, I want to stay angry at you. But you know, a true repentance, forgiveness, and then fellowship with God's son. Koinonia, if you've heard that term, literally means fellowship. And there is sweet fellowship. And you think about being with other believers. Instantly, you have a bond. You can laugh. You can express joy. You can be at peace with one another. Sometimes it's difficult being around other believers because of just different um, desires and actions. But the fellowship of coming together is a close relationship, especially in difficult, hard times. Because the Spirit of God knits our hearts. And it's, this is actually used, that koinonia is a picture of a marital relationship because of the intimacy, but also involving a believer who has been called or placed into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Each of you have a best friend, have someone who knows you so intimately and still loves you in the personal work of Jesus Christ. The hard part is sometimes we don't love ourselves. Sometimes, you know, you ever talk to yourself, man, I can't believe you did that. Boy, are you dumb, you idiot. You know, we do that. And even, it's like, oh, why did you do that? Oh, you know, we, and we, we don't always even forgive ourselves. But Christ forgives us and loves us and says, guess what? Here you are. We're still falling off that cliff. We're getting wet, you know. He places us on that solid, dry ground. Fellowship with God's Son. And that's what Paul is expressing to these group of believers who are diverse. They're from different countries, they don't know the Bible at all. They're asking all these questions, and they still are messed up in sin because they are Gentiles. They're Greek. And if you knew the hedonism, think about hedonism, all these things that come from Greek, lover of pleasures, and just the sexual immorality, the ideas, the confusion. We think about it, and nowadays, like, how come people believe, have so many different beliefs? Well, there were a lot of different religious and, and false teachings and beliefs at that time. And here we have, Paul expresses to them and communicates to them and says, you have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ because you are a child of God. This morning, each of you, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have that access. You are loved. You have a position of favor. And that isn't just to lift you up, oh, you know, I'm so nice, I'm the favored child. The point is to understand that to help encourage others. You might be the mentor or teacher to help someone else, but you're also, people are always watching. And that's the hard part, how you live for Christ. 
And it's not that you don't mess up, because I can guarantee each of you and myself, we're going to mess up. But when we mess up, how quickly are we willing to admit that sin and to come back to Christ? Because that can be the greater testimony for Christ than even living the perfect um, sin, um, less, not sin, sinning less, if you will, for Christ. Because there's some who, you know, oh, I can't believe that person has, has lived seemingly a, um, a sinless life. But people still sin. But sometimes you can have a greater testimony for others in messing up, but then coming back to God and how you represent that. No matter what position, no matter who you are, what you've done, you have an opportunity to glorify God through your life. And the key is to live for Him. And as we, just in closing, understand the spiritual blessing. Remember that. Because there is always going to be a spiritual authority in how we respond to that. And God working in your life. How quickly. You know, there might be, God might use someone who says, hey, you sinned. Oh, no, I didn't. Our natural response is to deny it. But to come to Christ, submit to his teaching, his leading, as we are confronted with the word of God and we read. It's a beautiful thing to recognize that this letter, someone once said, this is God's love letter to us. Well, if you think about it, while it's written at a specific time at a specific place, this book applies to your life. This book helps you to know God, to know how to live, and to enjoy this life until he returns to call us home. There is joy. There is peace. And I'll be honest, what does the world offer? Self-help. Ten steps. If you um, are this shape, if you eat this food, if you have this job, if you have these possessions, hey, you'll be okay, right? But once you get there, guess what? There's not always happiness. There's not always contentment. Getting there sometimes means stepping over other people or taking and making sacrifices that you probably wouldn't have otherwise to be in Christ. And so I encourage you this morning as we think about it, spiritual parents must always point their spiritual children to Christ. What that means for us, maybe you don't have someone who is still involved in your life who led you to Christ. Or maybe if you led someone to Christ, just remember, you're always their spiritual parent. You can encourage them. And maybe no matter how you came to Christ, what I want to encourage is that you can encourage others and yourself to point to Christ. Don't lose sight of it. It may sound like the, the Christian answer. Jesus is the answer in everything. Jesus really is the answer to everything. But you know what? When we sin, when we live our lives, it, I, would, I would challenge you and say, guess what? We forget God daily. We forget about Christ. We're thinking about work. We're thinking about um, things we have to do. The mind of Christ. Take the Christ with you in everything, whether it be through the words you hum, and think about Christ, what he's doing in your life daily. Be filled with Christ. Let it, him permeate out of your life. If, you know, sometimes if you were to think about garlic, I like garlic. And one time I made the accident of eating garlic cloves because I need to use up in eggs. I was working in the operating room. They're like, ooh, you smell like garlic. It was permeating through my pores. Imagine if we took Christ and they could tell that, wow, you must be a Christian because I've never seen someone live like that way. Or you must be following after Christ because there's a distinction between a, a Christ follower who fo lives and breathes the Bible and follows after Christ than a, a quote-unquote Christian. And that's what I encourage you today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, 